In the heart of the Amazon rainforest sits an old relic of America's industrial past, one that points to the auto giant, Ford Motor Company, and the man himself, Henry Ford. Come with us now as we explore the story of the rise and fall of Ford's jungle ghost town, Fordlandia. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Midwest Ghost Town, Fordlandia. This is Part 2. This is Dan. I'm your host, your history enthusiast, and your ghost town adventurer and storyteller. Welcome to Part 2, and I suppose this is a good place to stop and make a suggestion to go back, check out Part 1 of the series if you haven't already. It'll help make sense of everything else. But with that, let's go ahead and go forward in this second part of Fordlandia. A deeper look of Ford's Lost Kingdom down in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. His quest in starting a new rubber plantation in Brazil to offset the rising cost of rubber in the other parts of the world, mainly from Asia and the British-owned rubber trade. Interesting story on that one. All came about with uh, massive theft and piracy, depending on what version of the story that you are believing. A little disclaimer, because I'm sure this might come up. Fordlandia was abandoned and it had approximately about 90 people remaining in it. But somewhere around the year 2000, there was a revival, or a bounce back, if you will, and the ghost town became inhabited again, with a population today of around 3,000. And this is interesting to note because sometimes we have this with ghost towns. Towns disappear and reappear. A revival of some sorts. I don't have an accurate number on this population, and that was last counted according to what I could find online around 2017. But fascinating and sad all in one story, pointing to the Ford Company and its abandonment with Fordlandia. Now, in part one, we took you through the history, the victories, and the hardships of building Fordlandia, including the wilderness of the Amazon region and the mashup of different cultures colliding, and on and on. This whole disaster at this point has led to several different firings by the Ford Company because, quite frankly, they just want to get it right. And Henry Ford himself, he is spending a lot of money trying to get this project off the ground. In fact, 1500000 by 1929. And, well, worldwide failure does not look good on Ford. He's super successful, known as an industrial giant and guru of some sorts, one of the wealthiest individuals in the world, and holds the whole persona that if anyone can do it, Ford can. That kind of guy. He is a strong character, and he is stubborn. Stubborn with a capital S, folks. He doesn't take losing lightly, and failing is not in his vocabulary. Most people in these circumstances would just quit. They'd walk away, never look back, but not Ford. No. Instead, he pushes forward and hires a new man. So we're speeding up to this point. The new hire, Victor Perini, son of a Sicilian immigrant. Victor understood hard work, went to work for Ford in his 20s, driving to Detroit to make Model T's, getting his first job as a toolmaker with the company by simply yelling through the gates, hey, can you use a toolmaker? And of course, this was exactly the kind of guy that Ford likes. No nonsense. Roll up your sleeves. Don't try and come off as too smart. And the answer back was simple. Yes, we can use a toolmaker. And he was hired immediately. 
He worked himself up into the managing roles and went wherever the company sent him. New York, England, and now Ford was requesting his assistance in Brazil. With his family, of course. And this was the new philosophy being handed down, that it was important that there was total buy-in from the men from Michigan. So, their families and wives were sent with them. Perini made his way down to the Amazon and started off terribly. He should have picked up that it was a bad sign from the very beginning. But somewhere off the Florida coast, his ship runs right in the middle of a giant hurricane. And it sends them hundreds of miles off course into the Atlantic, taking a full two days to simply get on the right course towards Brazil. And arriving two weeks late, to add to the terrible timing of its arrivals, the floodwaters had half-submerged different islands, making the passage difficult. And as luck would have it, the captain of the ship, who was unfamiliar with the river, ran the ship aground. So this is all happening as he's heading to Fordlandia. And there was work and effort to break that ship free. And just when Perini could not feel any better about the situation, looking around to see nothing but jungle and river surrounding him, his eyes set on Fordlandia. Fordlandia was a total mess, with its company tractors sitting near the dock, half buried in the mud, its trucks slipping and sliding due to the ungraded, drained, or unsurfaced roads. The rain was constant, and the hot, humid temperature of the Amazon was stifling, leaving Perini to simply say, there is so much to be done that it looks hard to decide where to start. So imagine, if you will, Perini gets all the way down there. If you were listening to part one, you know that it was just chaos up to this point. And so this is what Ford Landy was left with, and Perini is greeted with seeing this first. Ford acted fast, not wanting to overwhelm and lose one of their best they quickly sent an engineer by the name of Weeks, one of Ford's most respected engineers, to help rebuild and construct a recognizable town. It didn't take long, and much of the undergrowth by the river was burned. New material began to arrive. Pipes were laid, sewage systems, wires of electricity. There was a new 3,200-square-foot dining hall that began to replace the old one, and the construction of a new three-mile-long railroad line to cut itself through the trees and further into the plantation. Fordlandia was alive, but Victor Perini was soon to be finished. Diagnosed with chronic exhaustion, Perini was sent back to Michigan with his family. He was suffering from the heat with his legs and face swelling and puffing up. He only lasted about two months. A few more good men being sent down to Fordlandia right after this. Hey there, welcome to Midwest Ghost Town. We cover everything ghost town and abandoned history here on this channel. Sometimes this takes us outside of the Midwest, like this episode where we aren't just outside the Midwest, but outside the United States as a whole. But as the name suggests, we do spend a good quality of time pointing to the Midwest states of the U.S. Typically towns and sites largely forgotten because they face some harsher elements here. High winds, both extreme heat, cold weather, with nothing to shield the building, big rainy seasons, and sometimes droughts mixed in between. Add the value of farmland in the Midwest, and you have most ghost towns being plowed under. But we have enough stories and history of these places to tell their story. And one of these stories is going to take us to the state of Kansas next week. 
I'm excited about this one. One of the listeners throughout the town, Nicodemus, and the historical significance of this place. It fits well with what we're going to be doing through the rest of the month of February to celebrate Black History Month. I thought doing an episode on this town would fit nicely. This is the only remaining Western town established by African Americans during the Reconstruction era following the Civil War. So come with us next Thursday as we explore the story of Nicodemus, Kansas. Now, for the sake of the story, and also because there is a lot to unpackage here, we're going to move along a little faster. Some names might be left out, but it's important to realize a new man in charge comes to the forefront by the name of John Rogie. He replaces Perini and really was sent down with the original management and had survived all the craziness. He was named assistant manager. He's named manager after all this and goes on a short chase of a couple of Ford managers who happen to go AWOL off the plantation. And through this process, he is amazed at some of the things he learns about rubber trees on this chase and Amazon life overall. It's natives, it's food, and this is where things get violent over food. So, naturally, one of the devices that Ford used in his operations in America was the whistle. A whistle marking work time and end time, timing the shifts and allowing labor to be aware of what the whistle means. But they had a hard time finding a factory whistle that wouldn't rust in the Amazon. So once they did, the whistle became a sort of annoyance in the Amazon rainforest, a disrupting, annoying, high-pitched whistle that had a seven-mile range. It was loud. It was piercing enough to be heard across the river, even to people not even associated with Fordlandia. Before this, the natives had other distinct timing measures for them. Number one, and natural, was the sun. The rise and the fall of the sun marked the beginning and the end of each day. But even more so important was number two, the seasons, marking the dry months from June to November, a time where harvesting rubber was possible due to no rain and the lack of flooding. But this wasn't something that was accurate. You had to go when it was dry, and this could shift and change. Dry seasons could end early or start early. This wasn't something measured, and one thing was for sure. They were not used to a whistle. Their entire work culture was adapting to the world around them, knowing how to handle the heat, how to handle the weather. And the white men from Michigan, they thought the Brazilians were just lazy. But topping this all off was the company concerned with health, trying to fight off disease from its former unhealthy model. They made workers submit to blood draws, made them vaccinated against smallpox, yellow fever, typhoid, and diphtheria. When the whistle blew, the workers would leave for the day, but they were met by four doctors giving them their daily pills. These high dosages often gave them diarrhea, stomach pain, and to avoid this, workers would often fake taking those pills hiding them under their tongues, even having little competitions to see who could spit their pill the farthest. thought that was pretty humorous. But beyond the hardworking conditions, the annoying whistle, the constant barrage of doctors to force vaccinations and pills into them, it was the incident at the food hall that nearly buried Fordlandia and the riot that followed. Now, I have read a lot of different historical accounts of riots and different violent acts, but this one by far tips the scales. It was like someone was playing with matches next to an open gas tank. 
something as simple as food. And here's what I mean. The company had this brilliant idea, or at least they thought it sounded brilliant. They were having the workers sit at tables and they had a full waiting staff waiting on the tables. And they decided, hey, why are we doing it this way? Let's have the guys just get in line like everyone else and get their food themselves. And on top of this idea, Ford wanted to feed them a diet that he approved of, which was oatmeal and canned peaches for breakfast, rice and wheat bread for dinner. Now, I'm going to repeat that just so it sticks a little bit here. Oatmeal and canned peaches for breakfast. Now, I don't know about you, but where I'm from, a little bacon and sausage and some eggs goes a long way. But oatmeal and peaches. Okay, we'll stop there. That's for breakfast. And then Ford decided rice, just rice alone, and wheat bread for dinner. No meat, nothing extra, not a salad, just bread and rice. And not only was the food bad, they made them deduct it from their pay. So on the day of the riot, here are all these workers lined up outside. They are tired. They are hot. They are starving, and with all this crappy food that they had to pay for, they were fed up. Take a match, gasoline, and all things go boom. The cooks had a hard time keeping up. They were running out of food, and as soon as they could get more, they'd have to serve it again. The workers started mumbling to themselves, why can't we just sit down and be waited on? When we come to work, we expect that, but now we get this? The line stalled. Workers began to push from the back of the line. People were forcing themselves into the doorway, and then there was an unexpected confrontation between two men. Worker Manuel Catana de Jesus and a man in charge of the payroll deductions for the food, Austin Phil. Many of the workers already hated Austin Phil. Then, Manuel came up to him, took off his working badge and handed it to him, signaling that he was quitting. Ostenfeld laughs. Boom. Manuel thought he was being made fun of and mocked for quitting. The crowd behind him began to rush forward with anger, grabbing pots, plates, glasses, cups, anything breakable, and they began to smash them. They began to tip over tables and chairs. And this was just the beginning. Soon other workers began to appear, armed with knives and rocks, machetes, hammers, any type of tool that they could weaponize. The managers that were present ran for their lives, and the rioters continued their siege, destroying everything in their path. They destroyed the dining hall and continued to the office building, and then the powerhouse, the mill, the garage, and then the radio stations. They proceeded to cut the lines from the telegraph there was no communication in or out. They cut all the lights to the plantation, leaving it in total darkness. They smashed windows, dumped meat and other food in the river, and tried to completely destroy the dock. Any truck, tractor, or car were completely destroyed. Windshields smashed, lights shattered, tires slashed. Many were torched or pushed into ditches in the river, and then was the whistle that reminded them. Reminded them of all the watches, the clocks, anything taking time. And they destroyed every clock, breaking them to bits. And the riot kept festering. Some of the groups split off and were in search of others to join their new anti-Ford army. 
and their new war against the company. Some went off in search of the forbidden alcohol that Ford refused to let them purchase. Rogge did all he could to try and stop the riot, but evacuated most of the Americans on the plantation. He had sent away armed troops earlier thinking that they were above the violence from years past, yet he was smart enough to get a radio message out for Brazilian troops to be sent before the lines were officially cut. After that, he set out to confront the group. What's your grievances? he asked them. To that, they replied that they were workers, not waiters. They hated not being respected and standing in line to get food. Rogge tried to calm the mob, but it was too late. As the crowd started to get violent again, and there was shouting, Kill the Americans! Brazil for Brazilians! Kill the Americans! Rogge and the remaining Ford workers left before they were in further danger, jumped in a boat, and headed to safety, abandoning Fordlandia. Of course, there are other stories claiming that some of the Ford workers missed the boat and ended up hiding in the rainforest for several days to avoid capture and possible death from the rioters. The riot went on for days until some Brazilian soldiers were flown in to squash the riot. The workers organized a delegation to meet with them and provide a list of their demands to be presented to the company. Number one, fire Ostenfeld, they said. They hated him. Number two, they wanted to have the right to go where they want, freedom to move. Number three, freedom to eat where and what we choose. We're sick and tired of oatmeal and bread. Number four, we want to be able to buy what we want, buy food from the boats that come to shore, buy liquor if we want, and we want to be able to board these boats without permission. Number five, better housing. Instead of packing 50 into a bunkhouse and getting us all squashed together, we want more space. Number six, get rid of the time clocks and the punishment of losing wages if not on time due to clocks being spaced too far apart. Now, this kind of comes from the fact that the plantation was spaced out and so they were kind of finding it hard if they were going from point A and having to go to point C that sometimes they'd be running a little late. And of course, they would be docked pay for that and they wanted that to be done with. Number six, stop charging us for food, especially bad food. Number seven, the card system needs to go. For the company being short cash to pay a lot of times, if there wasn't, they'd have to wait for that to be paid, and they they hated it. Number eight, better working conditions. And after the demands were sent, the rioters and workers waited. Ford's response right after this. Dan here with Midwest Ghost Town. Just want to stop for a moment and thank you for listening and following along. We appreciate everyone on this channel, no matter where you're coming from. You can find us on any multiple podcasting platforms that you might listen to, including our own website, which is www.midwestghosttown.com. That's midwestghosttown.com. And we think of ourselves as one big family and community here over at Midwest Coast Town. And I love hearing from each and every one of you. You can also contact me through email, which is midwestghosttown at gmail.com. Midwestghosttown at gmail.com. And let me know what you think. Throw out any suggestion or if you have any stories or information, I'd love to hear from you. Today's mailbag comes straight from my buddy Brenton. And I love 
this email he sent. He's been following along with this Fordlandia episode and poses the question, have I ever heard of the Huron Mountain Club? The Huron Mountain Club. And I had to honestly say that I had never heard of it, and it stands to reason. With a little more research, I discovered that this club up at the UP in Michigan along Lake Superior is highly private, highly secretive. And the reason why Brenton brought this up to begin was the direct connection to this private club with Henry Ford. Amazingly enough, they have a capped membership. I think it's around 50. You have to be very wealthy to be part of this. And Henry Ford was not invited, at least not early on. He wanted to be part of this group bad, so much so that he started buying up all the land surrounding their private land, which was huge by itself. The Huron Mountain Club is around 20,000 acres, and not much is known. So I'm going off a book that was written, and the private club finally allowed Henry Ford into their group. Because of his actions of buying up all this land, he successfully blocked construction from some roads being built around that area, which could diminish the privacy, but also aided in the efforts to prevent certain mining companies from operating in the area. That was kind of seen as a action of faith on his part, and two years later after he did this, he joined the group and was allowed in. Now there is a lot to unwind with the story, Brenton, some urgent legends twisted in there as well, but the connection to Henry Ford just shows how powerful and how wealthy Henry Ford was. Thank you for helping me keep history alive, and let's get back to the rest of the story. As it's been shared numerous times, Ford was powerful, and he wasn't one that was going to take lightly to any unruliness, and he opposed any type of idea that a worker representing themselves in some type of group or union would tell him or anyone in authority of the company what to do or make any demands. Ford went on to say, I won't let any strikers dictate how our business must be run. Ford management refused to meet the protesters' demands and instead used the riot as an opportunity to clean house. Ford brought 200 newly hired employees to Fordlandia, and he told the Brazilian Army soldiers to dismiss the workers and have them gather at the bank of the river. They then had 35 soldiers armed with machine guns inspect the plantation, confiscating any knives, guns, and any other weapon. He then had the soldiers go to the makeshift villages that started to take form along the riverbanks surrounding Fordlandia and shut them down. They closed down the bars, the restaurants, the brothels, and had them entirely cleaned out. After the families were removed from the buildings, he had the soldiers tear down the buildings and followed it up by having them completely burned to ash. After they were burned, he had them pour quicklime into the pits. And to the gathered, he paid them all for their time and proceeded to fire the entire labor force. Ford meant business. But even after all that, Ford still was convinced in making Fordlandia work. So he sends Victor Perini down a second time. Now, the first we know was a flop due to the health concerns with the heat, but somehow Ford believes that a second time is the trick. But the truth was, 
Ford couldn't abandon a project that was linked to his name. He couldn't accept failure. And at about the same time, the stock market crashed, and the U.S. was in a tailspin. That became known as the Great Depression. Ford told the local papers that they would not cut wages, and everything started to turn from Ford is a failure to Ford is a savior. Truth be told that the longer that it took the plantation to achieve success, it took the linked entire work on Fordlandia as a civilizing mission. They weren't there to just simply make rubber. They were there to Americanize the natives in Brazil. Because let's face it, how else do you explain Ford's colossal failure in the Amazon and the huge amounts of spending? Question mark. So here we are. The riot takes place, Fordlandia once again is falling apart, and Ford fires everyone. And then they turn to, get this, once again, they turn to Perini, the same guy who had to leave for his health. Perini is obviously one of Ford's top guys. He wants a second chance, he sends him down, and he partners with the managers in place. And they have a plan. Number one, first thing first, they needed to rebuild the workforce. Only this time, instead of just taking the approach of no worker left behind, including all criminals, they decided to make the process a little more picky. They ended up having all new workers carry around a little passport they made for them, which had their photo, fingerprint, and any previous records listed. Then number two, they needed to build a proper town. Get the workforce, got to have a town to house them. So they needed to build a proper town with a civic center, stores, movie theaters, and all the other fun stuff that makes a town a town. Especially a huge makeover and expansion with their schools. So, what happens? Before they can even get things off the ground, Perini is sick again. His face puffs up, his legs puffs up, his skin breaks out into this major rash, and just after a few months, he returns back to Michigan. And with Perini leaving for a second and final time, he returns back up to Michigan and Ford turns around and hires immediately Archibald Johnston. Now, Johnston was a no-sense kind of guy. He was tough, hard worker, and even inherited the nickname White Tiger. And known for the guy that really rebuilt Fordlandia. He brought to the grounds a bakery, barbershop, shoe store, and a whole bunch of other shops. He redid the dining hall and then turned his full attention to Fordlandia's housing crisis. There was supposed to be this little town full of 400-plus houses for the workers. Those didn't exist, and he knew he needed better houses for the workers. On top of this was some of the remnants of the old straw village that sat nearby offering cheap housing. He quickly demolished those, cleaned up the entire riverfront, graded and paved, and then named the streets. And soon it was taking the look of a Midwestern town from Michigan, straight with roads, street lamps, sidewalks, fire hydrants. The streets were clean. So were the shops. Other forms of recreation started to come into the town with weekly dancing, movies, golf courses, tennis courts, swimming pools, and gardening clubs. But even though the town itself was coming along nicely, it still was lacking the primary reason why it was in Brazil in the first place. Rubber trees. And this is where things start to get a little interesting. Johnston realizes they are lacking in this area and proposes to Ford to bring in an expert. 
Right. The very thing that Ford despises. Experts. But Henry Ford relents, and they bring in a big-timer, plant pathologist James Weir. So good at what he is doing with his research with the rubber tree and others that he was doing work for the competitor Goodyear Tire Company as well. He is later recruited away by Ford's son, Edsel Ford, and Weir had all these beliefs. Anything from trees being planted were duds to how far they had to be planted apart. So he taught the Fordlandia staff how to plant better trees and came up with a positive report saying, the chances of Brazil making a large factor in the rubber world are good. And he even felt good about Fordlandia, dismissing any type of notion that the ground was too hilly, claiming that Asia also had similar ground. But with a short time after, he did a complete opposite take on Fordlandia and urged Ford to abandon Fordlandia, that it could never be profitable, and suggested that it move its entire operation about 70 miles downriver to Belterra, which was slightly drier and had richer soil. Johnston was mad, and in reality, put yourself in his shoes. You completely overhaul a plantation. It was practically finished. The town now existed and was fully operational, functional, and orderly. And some plant guy comes in and says, abandon ship. Ford followed the recommendation and he started a second site, naming it Belterra for beautiful land. And of course, there were problems after problems mounting up with bugs and mites. This further infuriated Johnston because Weir just simply refused to admit any wrongdoing or any bad decisions on his part. They tried fighting all the bugs that they were facing off the rubber crops with sulfur, tobacco, even soap, and nothing seemed to be working. And this sort of thing went back and forth between the two men. Weir had interest other than just the success to Ford, and he wanted further research done, whether in Brazil or Asia, and this led to Johnson finally giving Weir a vote of no confidence back to Ford, saying, Weir has never been held accountable for his actions leaving others to carry on what he proposes. One does not have to be an expert to know that a standard practice in one country can be detrimental and good practice in another. Just when you think things can't get worse, the caterpillars arrive. There are plenty of times where I've seen different infestations. Nothing like the grasshoppers or Rocky Mountain locusts back in the late 1800s, but enough to see Asian beetles, ladybugs, flies, you name it. But this comes directly to mind when I think about what happens next in Fordlandia. Fordlandia had brought Weir, and he had different ideas on how to fight blight in the rubber trees, trying to prevent the leaves from dying, spores from other leaves could infest another tree, and spread like wildfire through the crops. But it was the caterpillars that were the most harmful. They would prepare for battle taking on these crawlers, having the workers hand-pick them off the trees. In five hours, they would pick over 250,000 caterpillars, and they would fill 50 one-gallon containers and torch it. The fight itself against insects would cost more money than producing one pound of latex. At one point, there was a story of Johnston witnessing the greatest swarm of caterpillars that he had ever seen. October 1942. A new generation of moths had evolved and adapted to the past techniques used by the plantation workers. And laying their eggs 
only on the new shoots, which sat at the top of the trees, making it impossible for the pickers to reach. And once the caterpillars had hatched, they swarmed down from the top of the tree, eating everything in their path. And if this wasn't the worst part of the devastation, their surviving leaves were often hit with blight, wiping out the rubber trees. And as Johnson looked on, he reported back to Michigan, they were as bare as bean poles. It's interesting to note as we grow closer to the close of this episode that Ford had this attitude of Fordlandia that they were going to take this square peg and force it into a round hole. You've heard that saying before. They were going to will their way to achieve success in the Amazon. However, Etzel Ford, Henry's son, could clearly see the lining on the wall and was even reported offering both Fordlandia and Belterra plantations to Harvey Firestone, the son of Harvey Sr., owner of Firestone Tires, saying, I think I mentioned to you once about selling our rubber plantations in Brazil. Going on to ask, would you consider buying them? And Firestone declined. Of course, there were semi-resurges and possibilities with World War II and the need for rubber supply, But along these near renaissances and survival of the towns was the continuous problems of blight and caterpillars. And the nail in the coffin was the invention of man-made latex. All in all, killing the rubber production and spilling the doom for both Fordlandia and Belterra. In 1943, Edsel Ford died, and with Henry Ford aging and in poor health, left the business to be run by his grandson, Henry Ford II taking over the company worth over a billion dollars and employing nearly 130000 And he wasted a little time after Ford Motor Company board of directors named him president, making moves to clean up the company. And a few of these moves were closing several of Ford's villages, both in South America and America. Ford Landia and Belterra, valued at $8 million, with $20 million invested, was turned back to the Brazilian government for $244,000, which covered the severance pay for the workers, marking a total loss in today's dollars as roughly $325 million. Interesting enough, the other two ghost towns mentioned that were closed in these moves were the Kwaming in Alberta, up in the UP of Michigan. Another story for another time. And some of Henry Ford's favorite places, actually, As for Fordlandia, Ford never visited the town that bore his name. The town that he so richly invested in, a town that was to be his biggest achievement, saving both the rubber trade in Brazil and the rubber crisis with his own company, not one single visit in the Amazon. And not one single drop of rubber produced for his automobile production. Fordlandia an Amazon rubber boomtown. Fordlandia, an Amazon river bust town. Stories from the past, still present and alive today, down in Brazil. A perfect opportunity to keep history alive. This is Midwest Ghost Town.